Before a lot of your time, uh, there was a terrible conflict that was being fought in Bosnia. And this conflict was largely religiously motivated. Bosnia has a, uh, a, a very slight Muslim majority and a strong presence of Orthodox Christians. There had been increasing friction between these two groups. And finally, they started really coming to blows over a variety of issues. It was horrific during that time, and people suffered terribly. Now, in the midst of this, this awful conflict, there was a pastor, and this pastor I really admire because he has to be one of the most insane people I've ever heard of. As he's going through this massive disaster, seeing all of this human suffering, he has this idea that he would like to be Santa Claus. He sees all these children who are in Bosnia, and they, along with everybody else, are having a really hard go of it. Not only are they not having the kind of fun things that you would hope for a child to be able to have, they don't have a lot of their necessities. So he counts up an estimate of how many children there are in Bosnia. And he starts working connections with friends in the United States. And they start gathering up shoeboxes and filling them with, with stuff, shoes and, uh, and little shirts and dresses, little toys, bars of soap, that sort of thing. And they send them over. He is, by Christmas, successfully able to give every single child in Bosnia a Christmas present. Now, for a lot of children, they had never received a Christmas present before. For a lot of children, this was the first time they had ever heard of Christmas. Years go by, and stories start coming in about how this little girl who received a shoebox had a comb inside her shoebox along with some of the other stuff, and it was the first comb that she had ever owned in her whole life. It was her favorite thing. She used it. She made herself feel pretty, and it was just so meaningful that somebody who didn't know her loved her enough to want her to have something, to treat her like a human being, to allow her to feel like a human being herself. And of course, this act of love worked on her heart. She became a Christian. Little boy gets his first soccer ball, same story. Little girl gets her uh, first pair of shoes, same story. And you just see them over and over again. This pastor was surrounded by a conflict that people thought they were fighting for religious reasons, right? They thought that they were fighting God's war. And they thought that that war was being fought with bombs and guns and traps and government and insurgency. But the real fight was being fought the same way that it has always been fought. The real battle was fought with love. When we look at our text today, we see this exact same paradigm played out. We see a battle taking place in which something absolutely horrific happens. And yet, most of the participants are blind to the actual fight that's taking place. Not just a fight that's taking place, but a fight that is won in a spectacular fashion. The real fight was being fought with love. 
Just giving a little background on our uh, text right here, we are looking at the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen has been arrested, and he has been charged with blasphemy against Moses. He's been charged with destroying the heritage of the children of Israel. He's been charged with trying to overturn the law of God, and they're going to take him to task for it. So they ask him to make an account for himself. He stands up and he says, well, what exactly is the history of the children of Israel? We took the prophets, they told us about the one who was to come, and we killed them. And then, finally, ultimately, we took the one that the prophets had been prophesying about, and we killed him too. Our history, our heritage, is one of constant rebellion. And so, in fact, I suppose I am trying to overturn that. I am, you are exactly like your forefathers were. We should be turning to Christ, right? He sets up this whole big argument, and predictably, it doesn't go over particularly well with them. That's when we join our text right now. Our text is taken from the uh, book of Acts. Oh dear, I lost my chapter and verse. Uh, we'll start reading at uh, verse 54. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Why? I mean, the Sanhedrin could have picked anybody to kill, and it seems like there might have been somewhat more obvious choices out there uh, for the, if they wanted to curtail the Christian team, right? You had uh, Peter, who even in this rookie year had racked up some undeniably excellent stats, right? One sermon, over 5,000 conversions. He's full of energy, full of pep. He's a go-getter. He's their quarterback, right? Or you could have gone for one of the great offensive players that they've got on their team, right? Barnabas, who's just going to be covering the whole area, a uh, massive evangelist, or Thomas, right? Incredible long game. He goes all the way out to India, preaching the gospel, spreads the uh, news a huge, huge, uh, uh, over a huge uh, land mass. And instead, they go for Stephen. So, so where was Stephen on the team? Does, does anybody remember? What was it that Stephen had been charged with doing? This isn't rhetorical. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yes, he was in charge of handing out food. The apostles had said it's not right that we should take time away from uh, the work of the uh, gospel to uh, wait on tables. So they handed off the job to a uh, number of others, and Stephen was kind of right up front with that. Well, okay. So 
the, the Sanhedrin could have gone after the quarterback. They could have gone after great offensive players. And instead, who is it that they chose? They went after the water boy. Why on earth would they have picked Stephen, of all people, to be the one that they perceived to be the most threatening? Well, in a lot of ways, it actually shows a lot of insight on their part. By being that, that, that front man for uh, distributing food, for bringing people in, he was this initial point of contact for so many people in which he was obviously reaching out to them in love. When they saw that, they saw that this was an extreme threat. They could see he was fighting a battle that none of the rest of them were fighting. He was reaching out to the people in love. Not only is this action that Stephen is taking threatening to their power, it's also threatening ultimately to them personally. It's threatening to their identity. I mean, check out their reaction. Uh, It's not even a way that you expect grown humans to behave, right? They start screaming so that they drown out everything that he's saying, and they deliberately cover their ears. I mean, how often have you seen this in real life? We're going, we're going through in a very, very contentious uh, election. I was really hoping that this morning I could say we've gone through a contentious election. We're going through a contentious election right now, right? As bad as it's gotten, I have never once seen anybody cover their, this never happens in a debate where one of the candidates covers his ears and starts screaming and runs off the stage. It doesn't occur. So what is it that's, that's getting them so deeply here? I think there's very few places in the world where we tend to see the supernatural predictably rub up against the natural world. And this is kind of one of them. When you share the message of the gospel with somebody, A message that goes, even though you're not perfect, even though you've done things that are worthy of God's wrath, he forgives you. He loves you. And he wants to be with you for eternity. When somebody hears this message and faith is not worked, their reaction to it is not what you would expect. It's not just dismissiveness like, oh, it's nice that you would think that or, or, you know, just shrugging, oh, all right, right? It is Anger. It is anger to the point of rage. And the place that's coming from is from this deep enmity that we have with God by nature. We are born enemies of God. We fight for the devil until we're liberated by Christ. And Christ fights that battle with love. We see Stephen here dying a death that resembles Jesus's in so uh, many ways. He quotes Jesus, roughly, uh, broadly uh, quotes Jesus as he dies, right? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, right? And this is uh, a take on, uh, on one of the seven words of the cross uh, that Christ had uh, said. Once again, he uh, goes, Lord, do not charge them with this sin as they're pounding him with rocks, right? very much echoing these same beats that Jesus had as he died for the sins of the world. But let's hover on that phrase there, as he died for the sins of the world. 
Stephen's dying an incredibly painful death here, being pelted with rocks. Ultimately, you're crushed. It's not actually the impact necessarily that kills you when you're being stoned. It's actually the, the weight of the accumulated rocks and it smashes you. Uh, he's going through a terrible death. But we all participated in the death of Christ as well. The stones that were flung at Jesus on the cross were our sins. Every sin that I've ever committed, every sin that we have committed in this room, every sin that every human has ever committed in human history, he endured the pain for and absorbed it, died with them there, carried them to the grave, rose again for us. As he stood, as he hung on the cross, enduring insults, enduring the pain that those sins were causing, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What appeared to be a tremendous defeat for Jesus was, in fact, the greatest victory that has ever been won in all of history, the greatest victory that ever could be won. And the battle was fought with love. We see the same thing happen once again in our text. Stephen is there being pelted with stones. And the guy who's facilitating the whole thing is looking on pretty happy because this looks like a gigantic victory. They took their coats and they laid them at the feet of the man who was called Saul. Here's your chance for redemption. Saul becomes, of course, there we go, excellent. Saul, of course, ultimately becomes Paul. As he's standing there, an enemy of God, watching what's taking place, feeling smug and pleased and thinking that the battle is going his way, he's missed completely the actual battleground. The battle was being fought with love. Stephen was fighting an entire, entirely different war. And indeed, that's the war that all Christians fight. That's our weapon. That is our battleground. Our objectives are souls, and our objectives are the one that Stephen called out. As he drops to his knees being stoned, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Heaven is our objective. Jesus has already won that fight. While we're still here in this church militant, while we're still here occupying this world, fighting against this world, our struggle doesn't have to do with the concerns that are here. It's not a battle that's fought on this plane. It's to show Christ's love to our fellow humans, born enemies of God, but bought back just like us with his blood. Amen.